Well, it didn't take long after COVID hit and the world shut down for a question to begin showing up on religious websites and in church lobbies and pastors' inboxes. Are we in the end times? Now, you can understand why people were asking such a question. A worldwide plague was claiming the lives of thousands of people every day. City centers devoid of people and cars, schools, office buildings, churches, all closed. Panicked shoppers hoarding toilet paper and hand sanitizer. Citizens hunkering down in their homes, afraid to go out, eyeing each other suspiciously when they did. It felt like the end of the world. And some months later, when when the government started requiring vaccines and issuing vaccination cards, some people immediately made a connection to the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. Were these signs of the end? Was Christ about to return? Should we be doing something to get ready for whatever was going to happen next? Again, you really can't blame people for asking those questions. And the truth is, Christian people have been asking these questions for a long time. For 2,000 years, these questions have been lurking in our private and collective subconscious, breaking through every so often, especially in times of tumult and crisis. The second coming of Christ is a central and distinctive doctrine of the Christian faith. It's the belief that at some point in time, Jesus Christ will return to earth in power and glory to bring history as we've known it to a close and to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. It's a belief that's meant to inspire hope and strength in God's people, but it also brings with it feelings of uncertainty and anxiety. When will it happen? What will it be like? Will we be ready? Will I be ready? And if if we're honest, we sometimes have mixed feelings about it. I remember as a kid hearing sermons about Christ's return and thinking to myself, not yet, Lord, I want to get my driver's license first. I wanted to live a little before Christ returned. And we all might be inclined to think that way, especially those of us who, who find ourselves in comfortable circumstances. I want to see the world. I want to see my kids grow up. I want to enjoy my retirement. But when we see all the pain and heartache in the world, and when it feels like things are getting worse instead of better, we're likely to find ourselves thinking, what are you waiting for, Lord? I've lived through many false alarms in my lifetime when some Christians were certain that Christ was about to return. And yet, here we are, still waiting. I've answered the end times question many times over the years in sermons and in lobby conversations. But here we are in 2022, fielding them again. But but again, not without reason. Because sooner or later, we believe it will happen. And we want to be ready. So how should we be interpreting the things happening around us? And how should we be living knowing that Christ could return at any moment? 
As we said, these are questions that every generation of Jesus followers have asked, including the very first. So we shouldn't be surprised that that as the Apostle James comes to the end of his letter to, to scattered and persecuted Christians, he reminds them of the second coming, and he offers them wisdom for living in the light of it. So, so as we come toward the end of our series, we have a couple more weeks to go, but let's turn once again to the book of James to find wisdom for our waiting. Not only our waiting for Christ's return, but our waiting for so many things in our lives. We'll be looking today at James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, and he, he introduces his topic in verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Uh, three things to notice in this opening verse. First, James addresses them warmly as brothers and sisters. Uh, he's, he's put his pastor's hat back on after beating them up pretty good in some of the earlier sections of this letter, where he called them adulterers and sinners and enemies of God. So James is intentionally shifting his tone here. He wants to encourage them. And then he names his topic, the Lord's coming. And he uses a Greek word here that means both arrival and presence. It was a word that was often used to describe the arrival of a king or a dignitary to a city. Not just to visit, but to establish their authority in that place. And it was a promise that Jesus himself made on more than one occasion. A promise that a couple of angels reiterated as the disciples watched Jesus ascend into heaven from the Mount of Olives. This same Jesus, the angels said, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, we don't know for certain, but it's likely that, that James, the half-brother of Jesus and one of the early believers, may well have been among the crowd watching it happen, hearing those words. And ever since that moment, the first generation of Jesus' followers had been watching for his return. And that's the third thing we want to notice here in this opening verse. The believers had, had no idea when it would happen. The angels gave them no time frame. So as far as they were concerned, it could happen any time. And that's exactly how Jesus wanted them to think about it, and us too. No one knows the day or the hour, Jesus said. Therefore, keep watch. Theologians use the word imminent to describe the second coming of Christ, meaning it's about to happen. It's an undated event, meaning every generation lives with that same sense of anticipation. Now, there's something exciting about that and, and promising, because it means that at any time, Christ could return, 
to put right everything that's wrong with this world, to bring an end to evil and suffering, to bring harmony and unity to all of creation as God originally intended. <laughs> and there's certainly times we, we look at what's happening in the world around us and we wonder how much longer it can go on. We, we wonder what God is waiting for. And we find ourselves saying in the words of Scripture, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I was actually working on this message up at Camp of the Woods earlier this week. Early one morning, I was sitting in the corner of the lodge, and I was writing this very paragraph, and, and, and I suddenly overheard a couple across the room talking about this very subject, the second coming of Christ. I love when that happens. And one of them said, it will be so much better there's so much suffering, I can't wait to see Jesus. So, so we have reasons to be excited about it and eager for it. But the moment hasn't come yet, and no one knows when it will. So in the meantime, we have to wait. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, James tells his readers. It tells us until the Lord's coming. But we don't, we don't like to wait, do we? We don't like waiting for the microwave to heat up our dinner or for our computer to update, which mine chose to do this morning, by the way, when I sat down to tune up this message. Waiting is hard. And truth be told, we're already waiting on all kinds of things in our lives. Waiting for the right job or, or the right house or the right person to come along. Waiting for a child or a grandchild to enter our lives. Waiting for COVID to be over. Waiting for the biopsy results to come back. Waiting for the depression to lift waiting for someone you love to come to faith or come back to you or both. It's hard to wait, especially when you have no idea how long it might be. <laughs> Imagine someone saying to you, something really good is going to happen in your life, something that will change everything, but I can't tell you when. Well, now what do you do? How do you live knowing that something good is going to happen, but with no idea when? Do you get up and go to school or work every day as if it might never happen? Or do you get up and sit by the phone or mailbox every day thinking it might happen today? Or, or do you take the pressure off completely and just coast knowing it's all going to work out someday? And clearly, we, we need some wisdom for our waiting, whether we're waiting for the second coming or for any of the big or even not so big things that might happen in the meantime. So, so, so James goes on to, to offer two words of wisdom for our waiting. We'll take them one at a time and we'll find the first in verses seven through nine. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. 
You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Three times in these opening verses, and once more in the verses that follow, James tells his readers to be patient. But, but it's not a passive, sit-on-your-hands-and-count-the-days kind of waiting. Uh, the Greek word he uses here describes an, an active, expectant kind of waiting. And just to be sure we don't miss the idea, he, he tells us that it's the kind of patience a farmer displays as he or she waits for the harvest. So, so James wants us to ask ourselves, how, how does a farmer wait? Sitting on the porch with his feet up, chewing on a piece of straw? <laughs> no, a farmer works his tail off while he waits tilling the soil, planting seeds, pulling the weeds, watering the shoots, chasing away the birds. And then, maybe, at the end of the day, he allows himself a few minutes to, to take a load off his feet and, and look out over his fields in anticipation. It's a long time from tilling to harvest, with a lot of work to be done along the way. But each day, as he works and waits, the farmer knows he's getting closer and closer to payday, to the harvest. And when the rains come early in the season or later, they assure him that the harvest, too, will come. And that's how wisdom teaches us to wait, for the Lord's coming or for any of the things we're waiting for in life, with expectancy actively and eagerly, living each day to the full, knowing that one day the waiting will be over, the end will come, and it will be good. You see, people tend to make one of two mistakes when it comes to the second coming. One mistake is to panic, to quit their jobs, sell their possessions, climb a hill to meet Jesus on his way down. As crazy as that sounds, people have done exactly that many times down through the centuries. Uh, back, back in the 90s, a, a popular radio preacher wrote a book predicting that Christ would return in 1994. And we had thoughtful, godly people in our church back then who, who wanted us to stop everything we were doing and focus on that one thing only. They wanted me to make it the subject of every sermon. They wanted their fellow church members to radically rearrange their lives because the end was near. It nearly split our church in two. Of course, the day came and went and nothing happened. So the first mistake is panic. The second mistake is complacency. Telling ourselves it's... It's probably not going to happen any time in the near future, so, so no need to get all worked up over it. No need to order our lives or priorities accordingly. No, no urgency about sharing the gospel or putting things right in our lives and the world. You see, the problem with both of those responses, panic and complacency, 
is, is, that, is that we miss all the opportunities to learn and grow and put our faith into action while we wait for Christ's return or, or for whatever it is we're waiting for. And that's what James and Jesus are trying to tell us. Watch and be ready. One uh, commentator puts it this way. The farmer looks forward to the harvest but understands there must be an interval of growth and development before the expected harvest. And that's where we find ourselves in 2022. In the interval between the first and second comings of Christ. So, so the answer to that question, are we living in the end times? Is yes. Every generation of Jesus' followers have been living in the end times. But we don't know how long the end times are going to last. So James tells us not just to be patient, but to be expectant, to be eager and active as we wait for whatever God has in mind. <laughs> and that expectancy applies to, to all the waiting seasons of our lives. Waiting in faith is, is never passive. Sit around, sitting around and, and wondering if and when God is, is ever going to come through. No, no, like, like farmers tilling the soil and tending the shoots, there are always things for us to, to learn, to do, even to enjoy. Not, not only to pass the time, but to prepare the way for whatever is coming next. Well, well, for a couple of years now, we've been waiting for, for COVID to pass, or at least to, to fade into the background of our lives and our church. When it began, we, we had no idea how long it would last. A couple of weeks, we told ourselves at the beginning. But by God's grace, we, we didn't waste time wringing our hands over it. We didn't hunker down and ride it out. Immediately, we pivoted in our personal lives and in our church life. We found new ways to connect, to worship, to care, to love our neighbors and share the gospel. We worked through some losses. We wrestled through some cultural issues. We leaned into some difficult conversations. We told ourselves that God could and would use this season to, to reform and renew his church if we let him. Well, it's been over two years now, way longer than anyone expected. But as we emerge from that season, we find ourselves with new skills and capacities as a church new perspectives on the world around us, new partnerships in the city and in our communities, new faces and new relationships that are bringing new vitality to our church. I was speaking recently with a longtime servant leader here at Grace, and she described it as a renaissance happening in our church. Did you notice how James pointed out that farmers look for the early and latter rains 
Now remember, those rains aren't the harvest. The harvest is still in the distance. But the rains are signs that the harvest is coming, that God is faithful, that their labor will be rewarded. And so they, they wait and work with expectancy. And in a similar way, we have, I think we have yet to see all the fruit of, of our learning and our laboring these past couple of years as a church. But this summer, we've been seeing signs of life and vitality, online and in person. We have reasons to be hopeful and expectant as we look to September and the year and the years to come. In fact, can, can I give you a sneak preview of what's coming this fall? Uh, we've been working on a new graphic to, to capture our vision and, and ministry for the year. It's not quite final yet, but I'm going to give you a quick look at it just to whet your appetite a bit. You ready? Here it is. Pretty cool, right? So many things to be excited about. Long-standing ministries that have a fresh look and energy to them, and some new initiatives that, that have been birthed in this interim period. Now, that's all I'm going to show you for now, but, but, but we'll be rolling it all out during what we're calling Vision Week, September 11th through 18th. But, 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 I, but I hope you can feel a bit of the expectancy that James is calling for in these verses. But there's a second word James has for his readers and us as we wait for the second coming or for any of the important events or transitions in our lives. We'll, we'll find that in, uh, in the next section, verses 10 through 11. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Well, there's that brothers and sisters reference again. James still has his pastoral hat on because it turns out his readers weren't just waiting. They were also suffering or, or struggling as they waited. And as hard as it is to wait, it's even harder when you're hurting at the same time. Uh, we don't know exactly what these readers were suffering or struggling with. Uh, we do know they had been scattered by persecution from their homeland in Judea. And so they were, they were trying to find homes and livelihoods in cultures and places that were unfamiliar to them. And the, the fact that they were members of this suspect Jesus movement made their lives even more difficult. They had no idea when or even if they would ever get home again. And apparently, they were beginning to lose hope in a second coming or in anything good coming from their struggles. And we all know what it is to suffer or at least to struggle with a world that 
doesn't always work the way it's supposed to. Uh, with people who disappoint us or treat us badly. With circumstances that don't go our way. With systems that seem to be working against us. Some of you have, have been waiting a long time for something good to happen in your personal life, in a relationship, with your career, or your finances, or your health. <laughs> and the promise of the second coming seems not only distant, but, but irrelevant to your current troubles. So living with expectancy may feel like a stretch right now, as it probably did for those first readers. So James offers a second word of wisdom for our waiting. After using the patient word four times in this passage, he introduces another word in these later verses. Maybe you noticed it, how he shifted from patience to perseverance. It seems to be a deliberate shift on his part. And he uses the word twice so we don't miss it. As you know, he says, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Now, now that second Greek word translated perseverance is, is stronger than the first word he used, which we translated patience. Uh, this second word actually carries with it the idea of strength of pressing through difficulties and instead of just enduring them. One commentator suggests uh, the word fortitude as a possible translation because it describes the, uh, the mental and physical strength in the face of adversity that James seems to be calling for. Now, for personal reasons, I'm kind of partial to that word fortitude. If you've ever wondered what the F stands for in F. Brian Wilkerson, it's not Fred or Francis or Ferdinand, it's Fort, F-O-R-T, which was my father's name and his father's name. Now, for a variety of reasons, including not having to spell or explain it all the time, my parents decided to call me by my middle name, Brian. But secretly, I've always liked the fact that my name has something to do with strength in the face of adversity. So I was tempted to go with fortitude as the counterpart to expectancy, but sounds a bit stuffy and kind of old-fashioned. So, so I've chosen to go with a more contemporary synonym, grit. Grit, the very sound of it, implies toughness and resolve. A stick to that refuses to give up or give in. A psychologist named Angela Duckworth has, has written a best-selling book by that very title, Grit, which she defines as the combination of passion and perseverance. And she suggests that an ordinary person with grit can find success and achievement in any field or endeavor. Now, for New Englanders, the word grit probably brings to mind athletes like uh, Dustin Pedroia or, or Julian Edelman. Not the biggest or the fastest or the most talented players on the field, 
but their willingness to take a hit or slide headfirst into home made them exceptional contributors to their team's success. Well, to help us understand what grit looks like in the spiritual realm, James points to another example, Job. Now, his, his Jewish readers would have been familiar with Job's story, as, as most of us are. A righteous man who, through no fault of his own, suffered the worst kinds of losses and hardships. His possessions, his children, his health, even his reputation, all taken from him in devastating fashion. But he persevered, James reminds us. He didn't curse God and die, as his wife suggested after watching him suffer so. He, he didn't curl up in a fetal position and whimper for someone to rescue him. Instead, Job climbed atop the ash heap of his life, scraped his sores clean with a shard of pottery, shouted down his so-called friends for their lame advice, and then went mano a mano with God Almighty. Talk about grit. If we had a picture of Job, I'm sure he would have eye black on his face. That's what perseverance looks like in the spiritual realm. So if you're finding it hard to wait, if you're struggling with why it's taking so long for, for God to do something about the world or your circumstances, know that waiting doesn't mean sitting quietly and swallowing your pain. It means showing up every day, refusing to give in to doubt and despair. It means bringing your grief and, and even your anger to God. It means wrestling with things you have always believed about God and God's ways. <laughs> even sometimes it means raising your voice and pounding the table. What gives God? What are you waiting for? When will you do something? Job and God traded punches for a long time. It goes on for 40 chapters in the book that bears Job's name. But eventually, James tells us, Job's patience and perseverance, his expectancy and grit paid off. Verse 11 says, You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And what did the Lord finally bring about for Job? Well, quite a lot, if you remember. His flocks and herds and homes were restored twice as much as before. He was granted a new family, sons and daughters, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But most importantly, he came to a new and deeper knowledge of God. Job himself says at the end of his book, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Job thought he knew what God was like, 
that God was trustworthy and just and merciful. But on the other side of his suffering, which was great, and the other side of his waiting, which was long, Job came to understand that God was more just, more merciful, and more trustworthy than he ever could have imagined. And in similar ways, when when we persevere through our struggles, we'll find God and his goodness waiting for us on the other side. Now, it it doesn't mean that we'll always get exactly what we want or, or what we were waiting for. Job didn't get his family or those years back. Nor did he get an explanation for why it all happened. But it does mean that we can count on God to meet us in our waiting and to form us into the people we were meant to be and to prepare us for whatever new and good thing he wants to do in our lives, in this life and in the life to come. And just to be sure, his readers wouldn't miss it. James ends with a, with a declaration, a declaration that would have been very familiar to them, a truth they would have learned from their very earliest days as children. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, James writes. It's a paraphrase of one of the most familiar refrains from the Old Testament. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. It reminds us that everything God does is governed by compassion and mercy, by goodness and love. And that's good to know because life, life is not always good. This world is not always good. People are not always good. But God is always good and merciful and just. Which means that as compassionate and merciful as we understand God to be, on the other side of our waiting, when he, when he finally returns in power and glory, we will find him to be even more of those things than we knew or imagined. Now, we don't know when that day will come, but it will come, James assures us. We are in the end times. Christ could come at any time, tomorrow or in the distant future. So we wait. Not sitting on our hands or staring into the sky or trying to decipher the signs and predict the day. We wait with expectancy and grit. Actively engaging in the work of the kingdom, pressing through our struggles and our suffering, knowing that when the waiting is over, we will see the goodness of God. A couple of Sundays ago, I was talking with a couple in the lobby after service, just kind of making small talk. The husband and I got talking about sports and the upcoming football season we were excited about. (laughs) We we both confessed that sometimes uh, when we watch reruns of old Super Bowls, we, we find ourselves sweating it out agonizing over a bad play, shouting at the TV. 
<laughs> his wife said sometimes she'll walk into the room while he's watching a rerun and say, you know they already won, right? Well, James is reminding his readers and us that we've already won. Our future is secure. In the words of an ancient creed, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But it's easy to forget that sometimes in the heat of the struggle, when it feels like we're losing, when the end feels distant and uncertain. Sometimes we just have to wait, and that's hard. I don't know what it is you might be waiting for these days. Maybe it's something very personal, relating to your health or your family or your future. Maybe it's something global and even cosmic, like the second coming of Christ. Whatever it is, wisdom teaches us to wait with expectancy and grit knowing that we will see the goodness of God one way or another in this life and in the life to come. So let's talk to the Lord about this for just a minute. Lord, in the quietness of this moment, we each bring to you the thing or things we're waiting for these days. We name it. We place it in your hands. We bring you the doubt and disappointment we might be feeling, having waited for so long, and we place that in your hands too. We thank you for the promise that your goodness and mercy will prevail. And we ask for your help in trusting you with whatever it is we're waiting for. Meet us in our waiting, Lord. Reveal yourself to us and prepare us for whatever you have in store on the other side, now and until Jesus comes again. In his name we pray, amen.